You're listening to the Comic Critics Podcast, a radio program and podcast produced at CHMR-FM in St. John's, Newfoundland, and Labrador. It's the show where we consider, critique, and recommend comic books, graphic narratives, and other forms of comic-related popular culture. Today we're joined by David Stevens, who's worked for some years at a local comic book establishment, an institution of sorts, I think, uh, Time Masters, Inc. Uh, welcome to the program, David. Hi. So we're, g- we're going to talk a bit about uh, some of your experiences and some of your recommendations, because you're someone who's been in, uh, locally involved in the comic scene for quite a while. First off, tell us a bit about Time Masters. Well, Time Masters, Inc. was uh, founded in 1991. We've been in business for 27 years. Uh, We're going to our 28th year next year. Uh, We're the longest-running comic shop in St. John's, Newfoundland. Uh, We have a a large inventory of board games, comic books, graphic novels, um, pop figures, collectibles, statues. Uh, We really cater to, to... every sort of culture every collector that we can and uh, we love having customers come in uh, talk about their collections give recommendations and and uh, really connect with people you know george orwell wrote this famous essay about working in a bookstore and how you know someone who writes as a novelist he thought it would be a beautiful thing and it wasn't (laughs) how do you find work as someone who loves comics how do you find working in a comic book shop it's both rewarding and frustrating in a way. Um, it's really, really rewarding to see someone come in for the first time and say, I would like to get into X thing. Uh, I want to read about such and such character or I want to start, where do I start? And then it's so dynamic and vast, the, uh, the history behind some of these characters and people usually come in for superhero books. So they're looking for, where do I start with Batman? Where do I start with Spider-Man? Um, and when I find something for them and, and their face lights up, that's so rewarding. And I, I love it when customers come back in and they say, I really loved what you recommended. Um, where do I go from here? And I'm like, well, it's the sky's the limit. It's your choice. Uh, the frustrating thing is when you have people um, come in and they're not sure what they're looking for, uh, and but they don't appreciate what what's there for them and they kind of give up right away and I say that is frustrating but it's not a knock against them or their tastes it's a matter of there's a book out there for everyone whether it's a a print novel or whether it's a graphic novel or sequential art there is a book for everyone and so it's so frustrating when you're not able to find something for someone fair enough it would be nice if people took chances I guess on things because you're not going to be worse off by reading uh, something even if you don't like it I think it enriches you somehow anyway yeah, there's, I mean, I've had recommendations from uh, people and, and from customers and friends that, you know, weren't really for me. Um, I was never a big Robert Kirkman fan, for example. And someone lent me uh, the 14 volumes of The Walking Dead. And now at that point, I think it was only volume 16. Now it's up to volume 30. It just came out last week. Uh, it's a real juggernaut of a series. I can see where it gets all its praise. And, the you know, the television show is in its eighth season now, I think. But it wasn't for me, Right. Uh, and I enjoy zombies, and I love, you know, I love uh, horror fiction. I love horror literature, but you know, the way the story is told, it just never really grabbed me. I never really got into it. Well, we're gonna get into some of your recommendations, but first off, tell me what? How did you get into comics? Where did your love for the medium come from? Well, I, I think a lot of people probably have a similar story to mine. My grandmother actually just bought me my first comic. It was. I live. I grew up in a small town, uh, about an hour away. 
So there, there were no real comic stores, although we did have a corner store that sold single-issue comics, but I didn't know what they were. I wasn't really interested in them. Uh, but we were at a, there was a flea market in the mall, in this uh, little tiny mall, strip mall, and my grandmother bought me um, a Green Hornet comic, and it was an adaptation of the second Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. And those are my first comics, and I, they were newsprint, they were grainy, uh, they had that old newsprint smell, you know, and uh, I love the physical medium of it, you know, I love that history of it. And of course, I grew up watching Batman the Animated Series, um, watching the Amazing Spider-Man, uh, the X-Men cartoon that were on Fox, um, and the movies as well. I mean, I, as campy as it was, my favorite movie when I was a kid was Batman Forever uh, with Val Kilmer as Batman. And he's a terrible Batman. You go back and, and watch it, and of course, and the, the sequel, Joe Schumacher's sequel to that, Batman and Robin is probably one of the worst things I've ever seen. But all those ice puns and one-liners for Arnold Schwarzenegger are just good fun. Well, you've brought in a big stack of books here. What uh, recommendations do you have for us? Well, when I uh, first started reading comics seriously, I, I moved to St. John's, and suddenly my whole world was broadened. You know, no longer did I have that small little corner store. You know, suddenly there were actual comic shops. And so I went out and I bought my first graphic novel, and I decided to start with the character that I loved, and that was Batman. Um, and I picked up Batman Year One as a start, and that was by Frank Miller uh, with art by David Mazzuchelli. And David Mazzuchelli's art is absolutely fantastic. Um, people talk about Frank Miller and The Dark Knight Returns as being the definitive Batman story. Uh, I would really recommend for people to start with Batman Year One. You get a, it's a small, short, uh, four-issue origin story that was really the basis for the Batman Begins film that Christopher Nolan started off his trilogy with. Um, and we get some really nice dichotomy uh, between James Gordon and his first year on the force with Gotham PD and dealing with corruption and being new to the city and Bruce Wayne's first year as Batman and really finding his feet. And it's a really cool uh, aspect uh, of that story and, and establishing the character post the whole Crisis on Infinite Earths and DC's first major reboot, which they'll have many more in the years to come, but I would really recommend starting there for Batman. Okay. I see you've got Usagi Yojimbo there. I've never read these, and I've always been intensely curious. Usagi Yojimbo um, is another is another character that I, I was introduced to through cartoons. Um, the old uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon that used to come on... Um, started in the 80s and I had VHS's now I was born in the 90s so I was a little late to the party but I used to love those VHS's so much and Usagi made a cameo and I always thought a rabbit samurai that is so cool and so when Dark Horse started releasing these really thick uh, collections these trade paperback collections I thought what a great place to start and then I read it and it was amazing it blew me away uh, Stan Sakai is the creator of Usagi he both wrote drew uh, inked he actually recently won an Eisner Award for his lettering, of all things, um, and I can see why. There's a unique style to the panels. Um, the story is engaging. It's it's character development. It, it's almost like watching an old samurai movie, only with anthropomorphic animals. And I can see where that came from, because in an interview, Stan Sakai had said um, the genesis of Usagi was his childhood, growing up in Hawaii, where every Saturday they would show Chambara films, the old samurai films, Jidai, uh, Jidai Geki, I think is the name, the term used in Japan for some of them, um, and funny animal cartoons. Those were his childhood, and so he married the two. And what we get is something that 
is wholesome, uh, engaging, with a humor and pathos and seriousness and uh, lightheartedness all in one. And it's such a really, it's a great series of, of sequential stories. Uh, it's ongoing narrative, but any, any one story arc or any one story can almost stand alone. And the best story arc uh, was the grass cutter story. And that really delved into Japanese mythology and uh, the formation of Japan as a nation. But it, it's done through the story, uh, the, the guise of, of a funny book with anthropomorphic animals. But it's brilliant, and I would recommend it to anyone. I was always kind of perplexed by the the idea of a you know a rabbit here, uh, but the storylines are, are serious. Are the they? storylines are are serious with that hint of uh, of world building with anthropomorphic animals. It's you get the the same kind of of the same kind of of gravitas. And I'm probably using that word in, in the wrong way here, that you would get from a Kurosawa film. Uh, you can definitely see the, the notes that are being hit by um, some of these movies like you know, Seven Samurai, uh, Yojimbo, of course. We get the, the title from it right there, right? Um, and Yojimbo, of course, means bodyguard. Um, but that movie by Kurosawa, Yojimbo, starring Toshiro Mifune, and the style of Usagi, the aesthetic style of the character himself is very much mirrored by uh, Toshiro Mifune, right? Uh, and he's he's got that seriousness in his character, and the world around him, of course, is inhabited by furry animals. And you know, there's the death scenes are uh, illustrated by a little skull and crossbones, <laughs> but the story is very much engaging, and it's um, it has everything in life that you you'd expect in a story. It doesn't take itself too seriously, but it doesn't doesn't poke fun of itself it never becomes self-parodying okay i'll have to give it a try what else we got here <clears throat> well um probably one of my favorite duos in comics uh, are the writer ed brubacker and the artist sean phillips and they began working together uh, at dc comics actually back in in 2000 if i'm not mistaken uh writing a story called sleeper which took place in the Wildstorm universe, which was a, a comics property that was brought over by Jim Lee when Jim Lee joined DC Comics. Uh, the Wildstorm universe was creator-owned properties, um, and Brubacker got to play in that sandbox with those characters, and he created the story about a, um, a sleeper agent, a uh, hero who got in bed with the villains, and he was under deep cover. Only one person knew he was there. That person, of course, is killed, and he has to get out. And he kind of has a crisis of conscience. It's a really good story. Um, and they do that. They write stories about conflicted heroes who aren't really, you know, the, the line between good and bad gets blurred very often. Perhaps their, their most famous work is Criminal, um, where each story is about a different criminal and, and their experiences in that era. It really reminds me of the old Richard Stark Parker stories. I don't know if you're familiar with those. Fantastic series of no novels. Richard Stark was a pseudonym for the writer Donald Westlake, um, but their their stories following a guy who was a um, a jugger. He would get people together uh, to pull a bank job or pull an armored car heist, and of course, eventually everything goes wrong. Somebody backstabs, and you know the stories were really good uh, noir for their times, and that's what Brubaker and Phillips are. They're noir writers, uh, fantastically and far out. The best uh, that they have is a story called The Fade Out. Uh, Brubacher is a really big fan of old Hollywood, and uh, this series is set in 1948. Uh, it's post-war, 
Uh, the Hollywood blacklist is in effect. Um, you know, it's, it's, we're getting to the McCarthy era and the Red Scare. Um, and we follow this screenwriter who is dealing with PTSD. Uh, he's an alcoholic. He had, had bad experiences in the war. He can't write anymore. His, uh, he's having his blacklisted friend uh, write for him, right, uh, on the side. And um, he blacks out at a party. He wakes up. This Hollywood starlet is dead. She's been murdered. Uh, the studio, of course, covers it up, says it's a suicide, but he knows better. But he's got to deal with the studio enforcer, right? It's, it's a noir tale. It's very much in the spirit of noir. There are no winners. There are no heroes. Only losers. Um, and it's, it's so well-researched. And the great thing about Brubaker and Phillips' works if you pick up the single issues, and sometimes in the collected editions, they always include an essay on the topic that they're dealing with. So for this series, it was a 12-issue limited run. Each issue had a gorgeous uh, painted cover by Sean Phillips or his son, Jacob Phillips, uh, with an essay about something to do with old Hollywood. So, you know, one was The Lonesome Death of Peg Entwistle, uh, who was a, an actress, aspiring actress. She came to Hollywood. She never got any work. She ended up jumping off the Hollywood sign. Or the uh, Fatty Arbuckle, Arbuckle scandal, uh, where Roscoe Arbuckle, a famous comedian at the time, um, was accused of crushing a girl to death at a party. And it was a big scandal, right? Now, he had nothing to do with it. She actually died of complications from a botched abortion, if I remember correctly. Um, but it was a huge, it was the first big Hollywood scandal, right? And so you get a lot of history with Brubaker and Phillips' works, and it's really well-researched stuff. And the essays are all in the collection? Uh, they they don't have the rights to all of the essays, and they're upfront about that. They're sort of like a bonus for people who start picking up the single issues. Uh, okay. Uh, they will reprint some of the essays with permission from the, the authors themselves. Because, of course, they're, they're currently working in independent circles. They work in Image Comics right now. And in fact, they have a new uh, original graphic novel coming out that's um, All My Heroes Were Always Junkies, uh, which I'm very much looking forward to. Um, and their latest work they just wrapped up, uh, which has been optioned for a movie, is Killer Be Killed, which is uh, a vi- their take on the vigilante genre. And so each issue has been um, an essay on a different vigilante movie. Uh, you know, the first issue had a, uh, an essay on Death Wish. Uh, another issue had an, an essay on Old Boy, a more recent Korean movie. Um, they're really great if you want to get into genre and noir and some darker storytelling. The art on the cover is beautiful. It, I, I got it. Oh, and and you're opening it now, so I can see that the art is is just gorgeous. That yeah, they're um, Sean Phillips's work has a very dark, sort of noir take to it, and it really fits the writing, Brubaker's writing. And I, I have to comment because they they take the time to comment as well. Uh, their colorist Elizabeth Breitweiser. Uh, Without her, without her colors, you know, this wouldn't work as well. And I'm so glad that the three of them kind of consider themselves a team. And that's really cool to see when you see acknowledged to the colorists, the inkers, the letterers. Um, we don't always get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was remarking when you flip through, you know, the colors, it's all very kind of dark, but there is a subtlety to the different shades and the colors. And it's absolutely stunning. Wow. Very nice. Okay, I'll definitely uh, pursue that one. And you have another book here that I have and I have not yet read, and I'm looking very much forward to it. Right. Uh, so I have The Abominable Mr. Seabrook uh, by Joe Ullman. Uh, Joe Ullman is actually a cartoonist in Hamilton, Ontario. I stumbled across this book by accident about a year ago. Um, it was on a, it was, it didn't make the short list of a 
list of best indie graphic novels. It was in the honorable mentions, and I thought, why is this in the honorable mentions? I should give this a, a read. I actually came across uh, works by William Beeler Seabrook, and that's the subject of this book. It's a, it's a graphic biography uh, of sequential art. And William Beeler Seabrook was a travelogue writer uh, in the 30s and 40s, and his work is just... It's mind-boggling that there is not more on this man. He's such an interesting man. In 1927, he wrote a book about uh, traveling with with Bedouins in Saudi Arabia. Uh, in 1929, he wrote a book about his experiences in Haiti. Uh, that that book, uh, The Magic Island, was what introduced the term zombie to the Western literature and Western vocabulary, right? And uh, it's a very interesting book and if you want a good juxtaposition of haiti from you know early 20th century to later 20th century read the magic island and then read um wade davis's the serpent and the rainbow wade davis is a ethnobotanist uh i believe he's out of bc and his work uh helped identify the psychoactive component to what would become known as the zombie drug and the whole zombie phenomenon in haiti and that's uh tetrodotoxin the uh, the active component in pufferfish, actually. But uh, William Beeler Seabrook, um, I, I am only halfway through this book, and already I'm just learning so much about this man, and he's just even more interesting than what I knew. It took Joe Ullman about a decade to research this book and put it together, and he's done a phenomenal job of delving into not only all of the, the aspects of the actual history of William Beeler Seabrook himself, but you know, really creating his psyche and really creating someone who's a deviant, someone who's a drunk, uh, someone who's, you know, on the surface, you would not want to associate with him, but you're just so drawn into his world. And that's very much the way that Seabrook wrote himself. Um, he writes about the grotesque, the strange, the, the arabesque, the things that really draw you in uh, and you can't look away. You know, his descriptions of voodoo uh, practices and, and they're way out, they're far out. And Ullman really captures that tone in his description of, of Seabrook's own life. I was already sold on the book, but you <laughs> sold me even more. I'm, I'm going to move it up my priority list. Well, those are some great recommendations. I'm going to pick your brain a little bit more if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Are you into manga? I am. I am, actually. Um, I've read very little. I will admit that. Um, I started off reading uh, some of the the stuff that was more popular when when I was just starting out into uh, comics and, and things like that. The, you know the weekly show and jumps that used to come, those digest size uh, monthly collections. And so I started reading Roroni Kenshin, um, which uh, Nobuhiro Watsuki is the the author and artist for that. Uh, it's it's a great little tale that takes place in the Meiji Restoration era. It's very fanciful. It's very. It's actually very romantic would be the word I'd like to use to describe it because there's a love story in there, but it's also a very romantic view of swordsmanship and, and what it meant to be a ronin and the restoration of, of, of the emperor in Japan and, and opening the doors to uh, Western trade and things like that. It's a very romantic view of history. Uh, it's not super historically accurate because of that, but it's a very engaging story. But I, I think... One of the things that I've read recently is Lone Wolf and Cub, and I was I was blown away. So I I picked up uh, the Criterion Collection of Lady Snowblood, which is another manga by the same author. I'm gonna butcher his name, but it's uh, Kazuo Koike, 
I believe is how you pronounce it. And uh, I believe it was it was illustrated by Gozeki Kojima. Um, but watching the Criterion of Lady Snowblood, that film, it was one of the inter- the influences on Tarantino's um, Kill Bill. And it's like watching a manga. And I, I could see beat for beat where they had used the manga as a storyboard. So I was falling in love with it because I love old uh, samurai films. I love uh, 70s Japanese cinema. And uh, I got one year, someone gave me Lone Wolf and Cup for Christmas, the thick omnibus edition from dark horse uh they're like 25 dollars they're 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 a steal they're an absolute bargain because you get about 600 pages of gorgeous artwork and it's just you can't stop reading uh, you know and the tale of course is of a of a um a samurai whose uh whose master had been murdered um and he was expect he was he was the executioner if i remember correctly uh and then they asked him to commit seppuku um, and he refused. He gave the choice up to his son, uh, who was a toddler, I think maybe two or three years old, uh, whether or not to come with him and betray his master, become a ronin. Um, and his son chose the sword as opposed to the ball that was put in front of him. Because uh, if he had chosen the sword, he would have just given a merciful death to his son. And they go out together, and it's it's such a weird dynamic because it's it's over the top. But there's so much reverence for the historical material. So, really, it's the lone wolf title comes from the fact that he's a lone wolf, um, assassin for hire. He does not hide. He he travels the countryside in Japan. He has this this baby cart uh, with his toddler in it, and the baby cart is just it's full of weapons, and that's so. It, it's almost like it's uh, campy, but. The characters are written in such a way that they really they draw you in, and the historical detail is so accurate. Kazuo Koike really did his research, and it's it really shows, and it, it creates a world that is engaging and and engrossing. I read the series a few years ago, and you're right. It, you know, I read the small volumes, and mm-hmm. I figured it would just be an occasional read, but I, I couldn't stop. I finished one, I had to read the next, and you know, the historical research was really what gripped me. I think even when some of the plot lines didn't, mm-hmm. and um, the art as well. I love landscape art, and some of the landscapes, uh, you know, of, of, as they're traveling through Japan, were just stunning. This is um, one of the things I, I love. There's a piece of trivia about comics history. Uh, I think it was Neil Adams back in the '60s. Now, Neil Adams is a famous comic book artist, of course, and he draws fantastic figure work. His um, he was kind of the guy that he comes out and says he introduced photorealism into comic art instead of the over-extenuated uh, limbs and things like that. I think that's giving him a bit too much credit. But he took his portfolio to DC Comics, and I think it was Carmine Infantino who took a look at it. And he said, come back when you can draw a telephone. The reason being is that the backgrounds, the landscapes, you can draw a superhero or a character as well as anyone, and the best there is. But if your backgrounds, if your landscapes aren't realistic not realistic but if they're not engaging if they're not well drawn in the style that you want to draw them in they're going to take you out of the story they take you out of that art and so when you mention landscapes as being a defining feature of goseki kojima's art it's very true and that's what keeps you grounded in the story what comic storyline or series have you read over the years that brought you to tears either joy sorrow your choice but what wow okay um 
I think the one that really brings a lot of emotion to me, and this is going to sound a, a little corny, is James O'Barr's The Crow. Hmm. Now, um, I'm sure a lot of people like me have seen the 1994 Alex Proyas film, uh, and it's a gorgeous, gorgeously shot film. And of course, there's that sad tragedy of Brandon Lee's accidental death. Um, and it's a great cult film. But the the original comic that James O'Barr drew is just so it's evocative it's it's you can feel the catharsis um of his pain and his anger and in later interviews he reveals that you know he wrote that as a response to losing his longtime girlfriend she had been struck by a drunk driver uh and it's something that everyone can relate to is the loss and anger and the you know the unfairness of it all um but more to the point his art is very evocative very moody uh the use of shadows of rain and they you know proyas actually takes that when he when he does the film um there's a great line in the film where it's all you know the film is always raining it's always shot at night it's always raining and one of the the young this young girl looks at the lead character the crow and she says uh, it's always raining and he says it can't rain all the time that's not a line that's in the comic but it's a real reference to obar's use of rain in that comic and it, it's very evocative actually of kurosawa all of kurosawa's films have rain scenes in them uh because rain is probably the most moody weather in a way right it it it, it brings about a lot of emotions because everyone can relate to it but the the writing as well it's very it's very poetic very um nuanced in its revenge you know uh, the, the main character eric draven now i guess i should for the plot um it's a musician and his wife or fiance i believe they were engaged um they're pulled over on the side of the road car stalled uh they're picked up by these these this gang of hoodlums they take them back to uh, an abandoned tenement and they you know they, they beat him they execute him and then they rape and kill her and it's very graphic uh it's a very violent thing that he had to witness and a year later, uh, he's given the chance to rise from the grave and get revenge. It's very much the it's the it's the revenge fantasy of James O'Barr in a way, um, but it's something we all feel at a primal level, and the writing just really evokes that. And uh, interspersed throughout the different chapters are uh, there's poems, uh, there are lyrics from bands like The Cure and Joy Division, which really add to the mood. Wow. I also saw the movie and I thought that that backdrop to the movie was tremendously sad. I actually didn't realize the, that weaves through the comic in that way. Okay, we're running out of time, but let me ask you, what forthcoming comic are you most looking forward to? Oh, wow. Um, well, I guess, you know what? I mean, there's one right now that I'm, I've been collecting because uh, it's actually at its sixth issue. I think its sixth issue actually comes out today. Uh, and I haven't started reading yet because I'm, I'm waiting to binge it all in one go uh, but that's terry moore's strangers in paradise it's the 25th anniversary series he's revisiting um the series that made him sort of famous in comic book world so terry moore like stan sakai um he's self-published now of course sakai publishes through dark horse but he uh writes draws inks all his own his work is completely his own uh stuff and it's he always writes stories with a strong female lead uh, and a really interesting supporting cast. So probably one of my favorites by him, and I, I've, you know, he's only have a few uh, complete series. 
uh, Echo. It came out in, I think, 2001, something along those lines, or maybe a bit later. Uh, it's a great science fiction story, but, you know, I really look forward to his collected editions. They really are uh, amazing work. He draws some fantastic scenes, actually very much the backgrounds um, and the, the landscape. Uh, Echo takes place in the Nevada desert, right, at a testing ground, and you'd think you wouldn't be able to make something interesting out of basically salt land, flat land, but... You know, he does a, a really great job of perspective and, and um, really draws you in. So I, I guess I'm really looking forward to, to seeing how that works because he's been tying it in with his other works. Strangers in Paradise uh, was this epic, long-form comic, uh, and then he moved on to doing Echo, uh, which lasted about 20 issues of a science fiction story, kind of the end of the world, actually. Uh, and then he did a horror story called Rachel Rising, um, which was set in this sort of uh, stand-in for Salem, Massachusetts. There's a whole uh, witch uh, subplot, and there's a murderer subplot, and it's it's really good, and I would really recommend reading it around Halloween. Uh, I couldn't put it down. I, I was trying to read one issue a night leading up to Halloween, because it's about 30 or 40 issues. Uh, I ended up reading it in about three nights. <laughs> but... I really want to see how he ties in the Strangers in Paradise uh, universe with these other universes that he's been doing. And there's been some talk amongst comic fans about the Terry Moore-verse collected, integrated. So I guess that would be what I'd be looking forward to is is Terry Moore's conclusion to Strangers in Paradise, the 25th anniversary series. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us today, David, with all of your comic knowledge. Anything you'd like to add before we clue up? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that there is a comic out there for everyone. Um, comics is a medium, and, and there are so many different genres within comics that it, whether you're looking for historical comics, you're looking for um, biographies, you're looking for uh, superhero, fantasy, escapism, science fiction, uh, there's something for everyone. And so go out, find a comic. You know, Google a recommendation list. Um, you don't have to go off any of the recommendations that I give. They're obviously subjective to my tastes, uh, but find one for yourself and you'll enjoy it. Thank you so much. That's David Stevens, uh, media guru and <laughs> longtime um, staffer at uh, Time Masters Inc. local comic book shop in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Hopefully we'll have you on the program again down the road. Thanks. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Thanks for joining us, David. You've been listening to The Comic Critics, a radio program and podcast produced at CHMR-FM in St. John's, Newfoundland, and Labrador. We'll be back in about two weeks with more comic-related popular culture.